a key word for me to pick up in what you just said is media. In remembering that media means middle and the relationship there with medicine. Medicine, the word itself comes from the root word medicus, which doesn't mean the medicinal substance, it means the practitioner themselves. So we are the media, we are the middle. We stand in the middle between the old normal and the new normal, or whatever you like, we're always in the middle. And if we can grant ourselves agency, boldness, courage, the punk rock attitude in that, we can say, I will be the media, I will be the middle. I will be the place between what was and what needs to be. That's powerful. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. To say that this interview did not follow the path that I had charted for it would be an understatement. I'm not sure if we even placed two steps on the path before blazing off on a far more intriguing course. In retrospect, that is perhaps to be expected when interviewing a scholar who has always bucked the trends and lived at the edge. My guest in this episode, PRC faculty member and herbalist Peter Conway, has lived in a van and a teepee has fought for the preservation and dissemination of herbal medicine knowledge, and generally follows in life a punk rocker ethos. I assure you that Peter is a freak, and that is one of his many endearing qualities. Listening to him talk about plant spirit medicine is like listening to a living mystic. I actually think Peter is a living mystic. And yet much of his mystery is wrapped up in what he calls the mundane, the common and ordinary world of herbal medicine that we are all rooted in, even though most have perhaps never been conscious of those roots. From the distillation of alcohols and the production of colas to candies and perfumes, all were once forms of herbal medicine. It is hard to believe there was a time when marshmallows were not puffy balls of sugar and licorice was not a red spiraled plastic substance. But that time did exist. And Peter takes us on a pleasant, almost spiritual stroll through it. I should almost subtitle this episode part one because I've already begun making plans for having Peter back on the show. Of course, I won't make too many plans because that conversation too will likely screech off course into a much more exciting realm. Here are some more commonly known bits about Peter. He graduated from the College of Phytotherapy in the UK in 1995 and has been in practice and teaching ever since. Prior to joining Pacific Rim College in 2015, Peter taught for many institutions including the College of Phytotherapy, University of Westminster, University of Middlesex, London College of Traditional Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, and the College of Naturopathic Medicine. He co-wrote the BSc degree course in Herbal Medicine, now defunct, at Napier University in Edinburgh, and co-wrote the National Professional Standards in Herbal Medicine for the UK government. He served as president of the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy for 12 years and is a former director of the European Herbal and Traditional Medicine Practitioners Association. He was made a fellow of both the National Institutes of Medical Herbalists and the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy in the UK for services to the profession of herbal medicine. Peter is the author of the Consultation and Phytotherapy textbook that he is now revising for its second edition. 
He currently lives in Victoria, is one of nine distinguished faculty members of Pacific Rim College Online's renowned home herbalist and community herbalist programs, and is working on an online project that will address deep herbalism. Please don't harm any plants while you enter the mosh pit with this punk rock herbalist. Well, it's good to see you, Peter. Good to see you too. Thank you for agreeing to come on to the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Now, as I just read in the intro, your bio reads like the who's who of anyone in herbal medicine. You have been doing a bit of everything, it seems, and been doing it very thoroughly for the past nearly three decades. So it really gives us a very broad platform from where to dive in. So I don't think there's really a wrong starting point, but why don't we start with you just telling us where things are with you and your herbal medicine practice and and passions today? Yeah, given my experience and given where I'm at now and since emigrating to Canada five years ago, it's been a shift more towards my educational work and I'm currently working on ways of extending that a little more. Uh, beyond my teaching at Pacific Rim College at PRC. And when I left the UK five years ago, having had a practice for 20 years in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, uh, in England, I assumed, assumptions are always tricky, right? I assumed that I would come to Canada and do a little bit of teaching at Pacific Rim College because I already had a little connection there um, through coming to teach seminars over the years uh, before emigrating. And it didn't turn out that way. And I found that as I left my practice in the UK, having had that commitment to it for 20 years and a commitment to individual patients, there was firstly a degree, a degree of, um, not too strong a word to say, of, of uh, some mild trauma around leaving that practice. And also, again, not too strong a term because of the commitment which, with which I practice of degree of bereavement even, of loss. And practitioners experience ambiguous loss as they break connections with patients. And I hadn't anticipated that at all. Um, I hadn't prepared myself for it. It was a very positive move for me to come to Canada. And so as the teaching began, and I had that thread um, coming here, um, that side became extended. And my practice at this stage is more on a, a basis of as people approach me and um, mostly online, as well as seeing patients at the student clinic at, uh, at PRC at Pacific Rim College. So I'm in that phase of partly, as I have been many times in my life actually, of adapting in ways that weren't fully intended, but arose out of circumstances. That's kind of the way I roll and always have done. And I do seem to have a useful capacity to adapt to those kind of things, a resilient capacity to adapt to those things. So the moment my focus is primarily on teaching and somewhat on practice, but mostly um, with students and uh, and online and looking into ways in which I can communicate my knowledge and my experience 
which is, as you said, diverse. I mean, it's just turned out that way that all kinds of things have come my way. Many of them not sought out in the first place. They come across my path and I've gone with them. So how I can share that information more widely at this stage, in addition to seeing some patients and that one-on-one, still at the heart of what I do, but being able to use the experience so that I have at this stage. So although it sounds a little, not entirely comfortable with this phrase, the sort of giving back stage uh, at this stage, given that I've accumulated some insights, I want to share these more widely. And I'm so encouraged by all the wonderful things that are happening in the herbal medicine world at the moment. There's so many courses. PRCs is a beautiful, outstanding one. I'm such, um, I have such joy in working there. Um, but there are many other courses online and otherwise in herbal medicine. Much of this, however, at a, a sort of introductory stage, which is wonderful. That's where our culture's at, I think, with the reemergence of herbal medicine at this stage. But I also want to offer some of these sort of what we call deep herbalism perspectives to nourish that um, more experienced path with herbal medicine as well. So that's kind of, if that helps, <laughs> kind of where I'm at at the moment. That's a good starting point. I want to come back to better understand what you mean by deep herbalism. Uh, I just have a few questions that will eventually lead us to there. First, why did you leave your practice in the UK? to come to British Columbia? It's a good question and a big question. And a question <laughs> reflected on quite a bit. And I'm going to give you a big answer to it, really, because uh, it, it requires one. Uh, a major shift in my life, of course, to go from the part of the world where I spent 50 years of my life to, to move uh, 5,000 miles uh, to the west coast of Canada. And in a way... There was an inevitability about this. And given that in my early life, one of my key initial spiritual awakenings was to discover uh, Native American um, perspectives on the world. The first spirituality that ever really resonated with me as I found this in my early teens in a book called Touch the Earth by T.C. McLuhan, Theresa McLuhan, who was the daughter of Marshall McLuhan, famous Canadian uh, philosopher. And it was a compilation of sayings in the first person from First Nations peoples, First Nations elders, Native American elders, that was the first time I'd really come across this spiritual connection with nature. So there's a long-standing connection with that kind of indigenous wisdom from a country, England and the UK, where there are no indigenous people in the sense of very long-standing peoples. And in fact, of course, UK, uh, a colonial power that's exploited indigenous peoples, of course. And that all that started to open up for me at a certain point in my early life. I did live in a in an attempt to make connection with this um, territory. I lived in a teepee in uh, the UK, uh, not you know, where place where teepees come from, but I did live in a teepee for a couple of years in the UK on a uh, piece of uh, farmland. Uh, was that, in- was that wow. your full-time home? It was my full-time home for two years. Wow. So it was uh, a period in which I lived in a teepee in Glastonbury in Somerset for two years. I didn't wear shoes for two years. Uh, spent a lot of time in the woods, um, you know, the way you do, right? 
how did your community, if you had one, receive that? Uh, well, I was in this, the stage of building my community at that stage, and I was already interwoven with the community. I'd lived on a, a bus, an old uh, panoramic uh, touring bus, 1960s bus, with a couple of friends. Uh, we left London, my life in London, gone on the road. We were known as what that time in the UK was called um, New Age Travellers, and uh, ended up the bus broke down in Glastonbury. Um, <laughs> so that's where you stayed? <laughs> So that's where I stayed at a, <laughs> at a place. This is how I say my life has often led me to things somewhat unintentional, <laughs> but I've arrived there. And we'll get back to Canada eventually, right, in this story. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> way, as my students will know, this is like my teaching. <laughs> eventually come back to the point of the question that was asked, but there will be connections made on the way, right? So the bus broke down, ended up um, uh, in Glastonbury, ended up living in a teepee for a couple of years. A teepee, by the way, made by Patrick Whitefield, um, who is a very eminent figure in permaculture now um, in, hmm. in, in the UK. So it's interesting how connections spin out over, over many years. I'm talking about the 1980s at this point. So wanted to live that life more in touch with the earth and, and inspired by uh, indigenous wisdom from North America uh, and so forth. So I was, this is quite a long story, by the way. Uh, Sorry, right. we have time. <laughs> was led um, to Canada eventually by James Christian, uh, your partner, um, co-director along with, uh, with Brie, instigator and visionary and sustainer and maintainer of Pacific Rim College along with yourself and, and with Brie. Mm -hmm. um, and James had been a student of mine um, in the UK, a herbal medicine student of mine. And when he graduated and was involved in setting up Pacific Rim College with yourself and with Bree, he invited me for a couple of years to come over and do a, a teacher seminar. And I declined for a couple of years because I had a lot going on in my life. I had a very difficult stage of life that I was living through. And eventually james at a particular point james just booked me a plane ticket and said you're coming and i think uh, we hastily arranged a date and uh, he kind of um, got me out uh, to the west coast and i taught that seminar the, immediately when i came to victoria i didn't really know where i was going i've got to say i thought i was going to Vancouver, which most people do. <laughs> when, you, when you go to Vancouver Island, people think it's like part of Vancouver. Um, it's not, folks. <laughs> By the way, we shouldn't put that out there, Todd, right? Because people on the island always tell me, shh, don't tell everyone Peter, about that. Peter, I just want to interject for my wedding. Yeah. One of my brothers flew into Vancouver <laughs> and, and he said, all right, I'm at the airport. And we're at the airport going, no, we don't see you. Where are you? And it took a few minutes to figure out that, yeah, he flew into Vancouver. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and, the, you know, Vancouver Island is an extraordinary place. It takes a, a, a little, it's somewhat circuitous route to get here. But James brought me into that. Did the seminar on the flight over, there's a little flight, 20-minute flight or so that you can do from take from Vancouver Airport to Victoria Airport, in fact, on Vancouver Island, for those who don't know. And I was fortunate that to fly over in the daytime. As I flew over, I saw the little, little Gulf Islands surrounding uh, Vancouver Island. And 
realize that I was in fractal paradise, by which I mean that all the little Gulf, Gulf islands are similar to the bigger Gulf islands. They're not identical, but they're similar. And I'd long been interested in complexity theory and fractals and chaos theory. So in this little crisis moment in my life, um, was on this flight and not quite knowing where I was going. And then realizing that I was going to where I needed to be. And the first sign was a fractal um, resonance of the islands, by which I, I mean that things are similar across scale. So the idea of the mathematician and uh, Benoit Mandelbrot um, and the alchemical concept that goes with that of as above, so below, that things are on different scales and they have similarities. And then teaching this seminar on coming to Pacific Rim College, um, I arrived in the college and I taught at many universities and other institutions and around the world, particularly in Europe. And I come into this college that you guys have created. And my first thought was, who has built this bespoke, boutique, holistic learning emporium of my dreams? Because it's such a special place. It's such a, a beautiful ambience. It's so beautifully set up. And I came to find that the quality of students are attracted to PLC of such exceptional quality that that was consistent with my intuition first arriving there. Suddenly felt very, very at home. Um, and then the key sort of connection beyond that was that um, on one of those visits, I met my now wife, who is uh, a Canadian, grew up on Vancouver Island. She emigrated initially to the UK with us having a long-term plan to move to Vancouver Island, but I had a busy practice and low teaching commitments and other things based in the UK. And we thought it would be a longer-term plan. And then within a couple of years, we, we both realized that we just wanted to be on the island. We wanted to be on Vancouver Island. We wanted to move from the island of the UK to, to, to this island. So we did that and we came over. And Pacific Rim College has given me a, a landing place in that kind of way. And now other things are starting to emerge from that. So that's a, that's a long answer to, to that question. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. You don't have to go into any details on this, but I never know where the podcasts are going to go when we start. And, and you mentioned some tough times that you were going through in your life. You're welcome to expand upon that if you want. I'm bringing I'll it up. Probably leave that. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm bringing it up because I'm curious if your connection to holism, to the earth, to what I'm, I'm going to presume... That, with the word here, spirituality, did that connection through this dark time or any other dark times in your life play a role in helping you to carry on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll pause with that for a moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say yes, always, you know, all my transitions have arisen out of that, really. So if I kind of map it out a little bit, I was born into a um, influence of Roman Catholic religion, which initially 
I was heavily exposed to my father was very devout. And the way one does again in the teen years, uh, rejected it. Uh, but I was exposed to spirituality in the sense of the Roman Catholic approach very early on in life. And I remember I was an altar boy. So one would do the stations of the cross, seeing, seeing Christ's steps towards crucifixion. It's quite a thing to be exposed to as a child, you know. Um, Christ nailed to the cross and so forth. Um, later on and now, much later on and now, that motif of Christ as a wounded healer is something that's very significant to me. That's something I, work, I, I embrace in my, in my work and I, I'm very grateful for. Also being exposed to the, uh, the priest doing the rites of mass. So um, turning um, wine into blood and the um, rice wafer Eucharist into the body of Christ and assisting in that transformation. Realizing, although I, I didn't appreciate it fully at the time, it was somewhat mundane at that time. It was kind of, you know, this is my uh, time to go to mass and assist the priest and be an altar boy. Um, that I was assisting in an alchemical rite at that time. But I've always reflected deeply on these kind of things. I've always been somebody who picks up on things very profoundly. So that kind of spiritual influence went in initially to a depth that I didn't fully realize. I'm still only really fully realizing or beginning to at this point. And then I grew up in a coal mining village in the north of England. So between the South Yorkshire and North Nottinghamshire border. And I've realized in my life that I'm always on the cusp of things. So I was on the cusp of those two counties. And uh, I'm born on the cusp of Libra and Scorpio. And I'm uh, one of, I'm the fourth of seven children. So I have three siblings either side of me. There's so many things in my life that have been on the cusp, including today in integrated medicine. I'm between the sort of hard science and conventional medicine and the holistic science of uh, alternative medicine. I enjoy both of those. Uh, you know, I enjoy standing between and unifying them. So I've always find myself at that middle point, and that's a reflective point. And in many ways, it's a, it's a challenging point. It's a crisis point, and it's a questioning point. It's an area that I feel comfortable in. So I left this coal mining village, Haworth, in, in, in North um, England because although it's um, a place with great qualities of people in that area, very uh, sort of stoic and authentic and genuine and robust um, and wonderful, it was not a place I felt at home with. So I had to leave that place. And in the UK, that meant going to London, to the big city and to seeing what that had to offer. And I've always been someone who pays attention to signs. So, <laughs> I was in sixth form college, as they call it in the UK, studying A-levels, and I was doing sociology and law. So I realize now that, that sociology and law, we can call that an awareness of social justice, as we might call it. And I had a kind of a desire and an urge toward that. But those studies were not satisfying satisfy me, so the call to move to London was, was very strongly there. And I went into the classroom one day, and somebody had written on the board, and I don't know who 
but they just written, there was a chalkboard in, in those days. I written on chalk in the blackboard, if you want my advice, I would leave now. And I just took that as a sign from the universe. I was like, okay, I'm going. Um, <laughs> so drop the course, <laughs> move to London with not many resources to do so and establish a life there for a while. So I've always been in that marginal place, that liminal place, that place between, that place that for some would be uncertain and, and, and uh, an anxious and a crisis point. But I've always, for some reason, really relished those kind of situations and found the opportunities and then gone with those opportunities when, they, when they've been grasped, when they've been offered, grasped them when they've been offered. And I've always tended to live my life, although I didn't know this until you know, somewhat later, with the sense that for me personally, there's really no such thing as coincidence. So that writing was on that board <laughs> to help me make up my mind in that moment i tend to read the signs that come my way at what point did herbal medicine come into your life yeah so i went to london lived there for a while did various things i worked in uh, i worked for a pharmaceutical drug distributor for a while for a while i was the the biggest drug dealer in London, in a, in a legal sense, I should say, <laughs> in that I was in charge of uh, controlled drugs, of opiates and so forth for this pharmaceutical mm. company. Uh, ditched that job, got a job as a funeral director for a while, uh, taking care of arranging funerals. This, uh, this gig came with a free apartment, so it was a pretty good job to have. Good training skills for consultation taking and so on, I've got to say <laughs> later on as well. So I used to arrange these uh, Victorian funerals. I used to wear a top hat with a crinoline uh, black trail coming off it. And we had uh, uh, horses pulling um, um, uh, hearses and so forth. So a bit of, bit of that, a bit of Gothic funeral director work. And, event, and things like that. And then eventually left London in a, a, an old, coach and it broke down in Glastonbury and um, while I was in Glastonbury I was working at Heaven's Gate Animal Rescue Centre. Glastonbury is an extraordinary place um, often said traditionally to be the holiest earth in England so very spiritual uh, centre where a lot of spiritual seekers would go so no coincidence I ended up there you know, at that time and went on to live into, in, in my teepee and I was caring for uh, uh, rescued animals, particularly goats at that, uh, that center. And I know, Todd, you have an interest in goats. You have goats on your farm as well. Got 12 of them outside my studio here, yeah. So I, I, I share the, the passion for goats. I was a goat herd for a while there, looking after these rescued animals. And they taught me about herbs. I would follow them through the woods, release them into the woods and see what they ate and so on and so forth. So this field that I now know technically is called zoo pharmacognosy or animal self-medication. So the goats were really my introduction to herbal medicine. And working with them, I discovered a herbal by Juliet de Baraclay Levi, who wrote the herbal for Farm and Stable. I used that with the animals I was caring for. And um, so I really began with veterinary herbalism, if you like, yeah. Yeah, we use that book as well. All right. Yeah. I was really fortunate um, to meet Julia at the end of her life um, some years ago. 
uh, before she passed. She was in her early 90s. And this woman's an extraordinary figure in the history of herbal medicine that in the 1930s, she traveled around the world with her Afghan, Afghan hounds as an independent woman at a time when that wasn't necessarily so easy to do. Uh, she was an absolutely remarkable um, figure. And I got to meet her in Edinburgh and, uh, and have a chat with her and tell her how much um, she'd influenced me. And that was a wonderful thing to be able to, to, be able to do. So I was working with herbs and learning from some local, very alternative healers in Glastonbury. So one figure who would come and uh, needle the goats with a kind of wooden magic wand. And the goats seemed to like it, I gotta say. It was a hmm. kind of ersatz uh, acupuncture. <laughs> um, there are lots of intriguing quite out there figures in Glastonbury at that time. So I learned a lot from, from, from them. And also the Glastonbury spirituality is a spiritual seeker center, as, as, as I said. So after a couple of years of living in my teepee, I was thinking maybe it's time to come down from the mountaintop and get a job, you know, and go out into the world and do something that is useful to others. Um, now that I've started to build some kind of sense of myself and what I want to do and where I want to go. And at the place where I was living, there was uh, a farmhouse which had a library. And on one particular day, I went into the library. And I'd been in this process of asking the question, what do I want to study? Where do I want to go? And I'd been seeking right livelihood. I was looking for a way of working that I could earn income whilst doing good or doing something useful in the world. I had, um, as a very uh, I strongly convicted vegan at that time, I'd become vegan very strictly in 1984. Um, I was very ecologically committed and I was looking for something, a career that would fit my values. So, so one day I was drawn to the library and there was a shaft of sunlight that came in a very narrow beam through one of the windows and hit a particular book that had sort of golden words on the spine. So I was like, again, like the blackboard and the chalk, this is a sign, I must pick this book up. And initially I thought it was the book. The book had some kind of message for me. Uh, I'm sure everybody goes around the world like this, right? Paying attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it. I, it's the norm, absolutely, yeah. So I picked this book off the shelf, thinking the book was the thing. Um, don't remember what the book was, because in fact, as I picked it off the shelf, this sliver of uh, folded paper came, fell out of it and sort of shimmied in this beam of light like a golden ticket <laughs> and then fell to the floor. And it was there just illuminated by the shaft of light. And I was like, okay, so this could be significant. Let's have a look at this. <laughs> and it was a piece of paper that was um, referred to the training program offered by the College of Phytotherapy, the College of Herbal, Herbal Medicine. Really? in the UK um, and immediately I unfolded that thing and uh, it was basically a list of the courses they offered and, wow. uh, and the prices and so forth I was like okay this is it you know and this is the thing and it was uh, a shining clarity that this was a mm. path well but it had been preceded by a long period of seeking you know and, and, and letting go of and, uh, and, and stripping things down to, to make space for that to come through. So went to the College of Phytotherapy, studied on, studied on the four-year full-time course and 
that led me to my my herbal um, certification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a little tangent here because you talked about being the goat herder and and noticing how they would self-medicate with herbs. How do you do that? Because when my goats get free, which they often will manage to, they just devour everything in sight. Is is there a point where they are more in a state of equilibrium and then they self-select? I think the what I learned was that one, I would let the goats into the wood, but for pretty short periods because they, they'd ravage everything, right? Mm-hmm. Those will do that. So it was more about attending to the goats, paying attention to the goats that were sick and seeing what they sought out. So okay. I found that that was the most instructive. Um, we did have uh, um, a herb garden at the, um, at the Animal Rescue Center at Heaven's Gate. Um, and I would take individual sickly goats to the garden and see what they went to. And I would notice that as opposed to the normally ravenous <laughs> nature where they seemed to be just eating pretty much any plant that was available to them, they would disdain certain things and go for other things. I found that was most useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this would tend to accord with what I've learned about zoopharmacognosy um, subsequently. Watch what happens when they're sick. Watch what they go for when they're sick. That would be the key thing. Mm-hmm. So other than these monumental events that you were conscious enough to take notice of, has any body, any particular person or, or people had an influence on you, especially in the formative years of your, your herbal training? Oh, for sure. I mean, Juliet kind of led me in that. I was fortunate to meet her later on. Barbara Griggs, who wrote a book called Green Pharmacy, um, she's a journalist with a, a deep interest in herbal medicine. And that was pretty much the first book I ever read seriously about herbal medicine. And so Barbara gave me the, the history of Western herbal medicine, which gave me a context for this uh, search for right livelihood and gave me a context of understanding just how profound herbal medicine was in uh, the Western tradition. But of course, it is so in every tra- tradition. I was fortunate to to come to know Barbara later on, who became a, a friend and a, sometimes a student of mine uh, as well. And she attended one of the last courses I gave in, in the UK. And many of our fields within natural medicine, traditional medicine at this, this stage, of course, are quite small. So I've been very fortunate to go on to meet some of my influences uh, over time. But a key influence who remains a key mentor for me is Simon Mills. And Simon was a professor at the College of um, Five Therapy where I studied, studied and co-author with Kerry Bone, another great influence um, of the textbook Principles and Practice of Five Therapy, perhaps a key Western herbal textbook, Five Therapy textbook at this time. So Simon has been very much my model to a great extent of how to be a herbalist combining great integrity, diplomatic skills, um, commitment to both traditional medicine and modern scientific medicine, weaving those together. So people like that. And then I've been influenced a lot by people I don't know, um, people I've never met, people who have passed. And the key influence is Ivan Illich. Ivan Illich, a uh, philosopher who is best known for his uh, book on um, de-schooling society, 
Um, but he wrote a number of sort of polemics in the 1970s, including uh, Medical Nemesis, um, a critique of conventional medicine that was massively influenced on me. And, and Illich is somebody I return to all the time, return to his writings all the time. He's very much of this moment as well as those moments. He called for um, a vernacular revolution, vernacular meaning homemade, homespun, homebred, and so on. So sometimes that uh, we're in the midst of the pandemic as we're recording, right? So we're teaching online, but particularly in the PRC classroom, sometimes still on Zoom meetings and so on. Students in class will be knitting, um, for example, and they'll sometimes say to me, Peter, is it okay if I knit in class? And I say, not only is it okay, it's essential because this is part of the vernacular revolution. You're taking the means of production back into your own hands. Literally, you're making your own clothing by knitting right now. Ivan would have, uh, would have approved. So a number of influences, both people I've met, people I've had personal experience with, and people I've kind of read, of course, like most people as well. Yeah. Hmm. What about your parents or caretakers and your six siblings? Yeah. Um, my father was a, uh, worked in a brass foundry. Um, so I grew up in a working class area, as we would say in the UK, um, of Northern England uh, in a coal mining village, where the sort of main occupations in that area were going down the pit, meaning the, the, the coal mine working in the glass bulbs factory, they made glass bulbs, um, the shoe factory. Well, my father worked in the brass foundry in the, the nearby town of, um, uh, of Doncaster, old uh, Roman town. And um, my father's been a huge influence in many ways, and partly because of his own story that he's, uh, he was Irish, he passed some years ago, he was Irish. Um, but was really forced out of Ireland at a very young and tender uh, age because of English colonialism and its adverse effects on Ireland at that time. He came over with his father, as many Irish people did in this period, and sent money back from work in England to his parents, uh, to his mother uh, and family in Ireland. And at that time, there was a lot of discrimination against the Irish in England. So this, by the way, leaves me with rather ambivalent feelings about my sort of English background. Some good things, but some questioning things as well. So my father came over and what was really available to Irish people at that time was quite limited in England. So my father became a, a road builder, a paver, as we would say in Canada. Um, uh, but a navigator, as they said uh, back then, shortened to Navi, he became a Navi. And my father was a very sensitive, very intellectual man for whom this was not, you know, the ideal kind of route for him to, to, to follow. And he had uh, significant struggles with that, but he did an amazing job in, in raising his family. My mother um, has been sort of the real rock of my life in many ways, and she was a rock of the family, keeping us all together and tending uh, for us all. So I was very fortunate to grow up with my mom at home, looking after us all and giving us all great 
and very clear guidance. <laughs> She's a very clear um, and profound woman in a very sort of everyday lived sense of that. The, the, those words and uh, thankfully she's, she's still with us but one of the tensions for me in le leaving the UK was that my mother lives there and she's still there so I'm some way away from her and I'm grateful to technology to keep connecting but my siblings um, uh, all but one still live very close to her so can uh, can support them and my siblings um, you know we're a very close family although we're somewhat spread uh, around the world and uh, my siblings I'm in regular touch with, checking on, on mom and that kind of, kind of stuff. So, yeah, that helps to understand. Does your family embrace the work that you do? And have they always, if they do embrace it, have they always done that? Or has it been an uphill battle? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking to, you'd have to ask them. But uh, here's my assumption, right? <laughs> yeah, I think they pretty much embraced it. What, what I would say about that is, you know, growing up in a, a really quite tough working class um, area, um, some of my siblings went to university, some did not, and so on. So coming from a working class background, if you can if you can adapt to circumstance, you can find a way forward. If you can find a way of sustaining yourself, whatever that is, it tends to be respected because it's a tough world, right? So mm -hmm. I think I've always been respected by my family in that kind of way. I think I've always sort of sort of carved out from the beginning some some license, in fact, to be different as well. So within any every large family, there's always um, uh, a character of that kind, and that's tended to be me. So um, I've had um, great permission from my family, I think, just be free and finding my way. So whenever I've said, I'm doing this now, my family are like, okay, of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they get me. They get me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, recently I interviewed one of your colleagues at Pacific Rim College, David Codwell, yeah. who also is from the UK. We talked a bit about the universities there that taught herbal medicine, mostly now in the past. And you've actually played quite a significant role in, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I understand in the development and ongoing uh, contribution to the field of herbal medicine in the UK, you've taught at many of those universities and created programs for them. Can you talk a bit about that and, and your experiences with that? Yeah, and I guess in doing that, there are two trajectories that I can mention. And one trajectory I was involved in for quite a long time uh, was sort of mainstreaming of herbal medicine. So my work and commitment to bring herbal medicine back to where it has always been in every culture as being a rather sort of mundane, everyday um, aspect of healthcare. One of the things I love about health medicine is how um, mundane it is, which I, by which I don't mean boring, but maybe it could be sometimes, you know, I think that's okay too. Mundane means of the world, of the everyday, so not exceptional out on the fringes, but the core of culture it always has been that in every culture traditionally. So part of my trajectory has been about my work has been about establishing that trajectory of mainstreaming plants, bringing back to center from periphery. They belong at the center. And another trajectory 
based on the experience of trying to do that and having limited success in doing so, has been embracing the, the peripheralness of homeless at this stage, or the outsiderness of homeless at this stage. Groucho Marx, um, famous uh, comedian, the real punk rocker of his time, I think, said that he wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have him. And I've come to see the wisdom of that, which in the sense that if herbal medicine became mainstream within universities in Western culture right now, if it became mainstream in medicine, in Western culture as it is right now, it probably, that, that type of herbal medicine would probably be doing something wrong. Because the reason why herbal medicine has become so marginalized has become on the peripheries is because nature has shifted at the center of popular culture, mainstream culture. So over time, I realized the nature of the beast I was working with <laughs> um, and my initial naiveties around this were um, revealed such that now I often say to students at PSC, you know, in the first time that we meet, that I don't know much about you guys yet, but I do know that you're all freaks. Hmm. And you're all freaks, and that's a really good thing. Thank you for being a freak, because if you weren't a freak, you'd be doing something more mainstream. And if you were doing something more mainstream, you might be doing something that, despite the best attentions of people in those mainstream roles, is really right now more part of the problem than it is the solution. So by choosing a non-mainstream path, you're doing the right thing because you folks are the solution coming forward. So initially my work involved um, being president of the College of Practitioners of Therapy, being a, um, a director of the European Herbal Traditional Medicine Practitioners Association, uh, helping to develop some Bachelor of Science degree courses in health medicine in the UK, particularly one which no longer exists at Napier University in Edinburgh, which I co-wrote the syllabus um, for that. Interesting experience, by the way, you know, when you write a university course, you have a validation event. So you sit before the dean of the particular school, the principal of the particular school, and present your document and back it up. It's a bit like when you have to back up and justify a PhD when you submit your thesis. So I wrote the BSc degree in herbal medicine um, at Napier University in Edinburgh, along with a colleague, uh, Anya Plant. By the way, the cover of this document is quite interesting because it said Peter Con P. Conway and A. Plant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have a picture of that which I quite like um, and it said above that Bachelor of Science degree in herbal medicine so I was at this long boardroom table with the dean of the school um, of life sciences at Napier University I'd never met before this is very sort of hierarchical elite institution and in this very sort of aggressive validation event and he had in front of him the document that said Bachelor of Science degree in herbal medicine. And the opening of our meeting where we were there to justify and validate this course, as we actually did, and it, and, and it existed for some, for some years before being dropped by the university, he took this document and flung it across the table 
to me. It ended up with me, I was sitting directly opposite with the other and hit me in the chest, hmm. which he didn't seem to mind. And he said to me, why is this a Bachelor of Science and not a Bachelor of Arts? Hmm. That was my first question. So I, I said a little bit something about, you know, art and science and the combination of the two and so on. But it brought home to me the way that Herbal Medicine is seen by the establishment, the ed educational establishment, yeah. as being not credible in a scientific, you know, sense. And nor would I want to undermine the art side of it. There's a big art side, of course, to think every serious practice of medicine, not just herbal medicine, right, including conventional medicine. So after years of having those kind of experiences and working with the uh, UK government towards statutory regulation of herbal practitioners, which after 14 years uh, was finally dropped and, and, and never happened, I realized that the reason why the mainstream, and many of those Bachelor of Science degree courses are established in, in universities in the UK in the 1990s and early noughties have now disappeared. I think there's only one left standing at this point. There were several more uh, at one point. Um, I think the reason were why those projects have not kind of found a niche within the universities and the regulation of health has not found a niche within mainstream culture is that um, they are a significant challenge to those cultures. They don't really fit in. And if they did fit in, they'd probably be, have to compromise themselves in some way as well. So I've learned in that second trajectory of being able to welcome and embrace um, the otherness, the differentness, the challengingness of alternative medicine, to use that word. There's great value in that because a culture in which if this culture, this mainstream neo-capitalist culture were to embrace herbal medicine, be something wrong with that kind of herbal medicine. Herbal medicine needs to change the culture first. Yeah. Yeah. As a, a slight aside, i related to the story with Edinburgh Napier University. You probably know this, and I mentioned this briefly mm -hmm. in the interview with David, but our colleague, James Christian spent a couple years basically demonstrating to that university that our curriculum was comparable to the curriculum that you created so that our students could then matriculate into a master's program, which he successfully did, only to have the program get canceled within days or weeks after that approval went through. It took many years, but I didn't realize that our, our curriculum was being basically directly compared to the curriculum you created. Interesting how these things come full circle, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, Napier University dropped the BSc in Home Medicine along with many other universities at that time, partly due to hostility from within the uh, life sciences departments and others within the universities who uh, entrenched established academics who saw Pebble medicine as being not proper science, not mm. worthy of study within those elite institutions or being too challenging to the hierarchical structures. I think that's mostly why these things eventually sort of faded right. um, from those institutions. But more power to the independent colleges such as PRC in you know creating something that is much more focused on the more essential nature of those disciplines. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular point in your schooling that 
you realize that it, it seems to me, I'll back up for a second. It seems to me that you really found your niche and in, in an industry and you have really risen up through the ranks to being one of the most recognized herbalists. Was that expected from yourself when you were in schooling or is this something that just kind of organically happened as, as you've gone through the years? Yeah, the latter. Yeah. So with organic being a good word, right? So I'm often encouraging people interested in health medicine to be like plants. Plants grab opportunities. So as a, an academic and um, somebody might be considered, you know, a thought leader in herbal medicine or something like that. Um, I've really just been like weeds, you know, cracks in the sidewalk that they go into, you know, I'm a dandelion. So I'll just grab the opportunities that come my way. But no, 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 there's never been a plan. I've never had a plan. One thing has led to another organically. But um, it is important to grasp those opportunities where they come, when they come. So I am aware that there is a little bit more to it than just stumbling around and, you know, falling into, into plays. So I'm always fond of Terence McKenna's quote about this. That Terence said, nature loves courage, and she proves this by removing obstacles in the way of the courageous. So I have had to show courage and boldness at the time to do the things that I've done. I do many things I'm not qualified for. I wasn't qualified to write a BSc herbal medicine program at Napier University. It's usually PhDs that do that, and I didn't have a PhD. But part of my uh, sort of background in, in doing that is when you come from a working class uh, background, when you come from a family that has not been um, entrenched in you know, degree level education and so on, you have to make your own luck. Um, and one of my spiritual awakenings, my first sort of self-chosen spiritual awakening was punk rock, which hit the UK perfect time for me in puberty age 13 the sex pistols and the clash come out and johnny rotten the leader of the sex pistols or john lydon his real name said anger is an energy you need to use that anger to do something positive with it and the punk rockers would were more interested in attitude and convictions and belief and passion than the ability to play your own instrument and I've always kind of gone with that ethic. If I think I can do something, if I think I have the potential for it to interest me, I'll learn the skills as I go along and I'll teach them to myself. I'm an autodidact to a great extent. And not let the fact that I'm not qualified or get in my way. So partly there's been that sort of boldness to grasp opportunities when they come as well, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mentioned sort of boldness and courage. It's really just to encourage others who might feel that oh, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure if I'm qualified for this, but I want to do it. I have a passion for it. I have an interest in it. And that includes many of the, the students who come to PRC as they're developing trust in finding their path and so on, but many others outside, of course, um, just to say, trust yourself, trust your instincts, see what you can do. Don't let anybody stop you. Don't let anyone get in your way just to encourage others with that thought. I think that's very valuable. And 
you spoke of you not having the credentials to be writing a university program. James Christian, my wife, myself, none yeah. of us had credentials to start a college or write the programs that, that we created. We, we just had a passion to do it, and we followed that. Yeah. I love that you spoke of punk rock. I also was influenced by punk rock of a slightly later generation than you, but we have a bunch of chickens here on the farm and they're mostly heritage breeds with some unique characteristics. And some of those are silkies and we had two silkies. We only have one left of, of this, but the silkies look like punk rockers to me. They just have this wild, crazy hair. And so I named our two silky roosters, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and Sid Vicious, who came to a tragic end, but mm -hmm. it was very sweet guy. I've I've come to learn about him. It's said that he couldn't play his bass. He probably could play it slightly better than 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 uh, he has a reputation for. But he wasn't outstanding. But the image of Sid Vicious, the attitude of Sid Vicious, the, the, the soul of punk rock to me, to, in many ways, he's an interesting example. A kind of linked one that might be even better is Paul Simonon from The Clash, who, again, would not describe himself as the world's greatest bass player. But the passion and the power, you know, this is the person who gives us the baseline to London calling and the guns of mm, bricks and yeah. things like that, right? So, and he's talked about the the passion and the vision over the technical skill. So always trust to that. Technical skill is fine as well, right? Um, but the passion, you know, has to be there, I think. That's the key thing. Mm -hmm. Would you call yourself an activist for herbal medicine? For sure, yeah. What influenced you to go down that path? Several things, and one, I mentioned veganism, and in my late teens, I saw a video um, that was of animals in factory farms, and that opened my eyes to the abuse and suffering uh, of animals that has never left me. My veganism is not so strict or as passionate as it once was back in the day. Um, but that care for other creatures, other species and ourselves, and the political nature of that um, went in very deep. I mentioned growing up in a coal mining village, and in the early, early 1980s, I had left home and was living in London, but I came to visit my parents and couldn't get into the village because there was a cordon of police around it, because this was during the miners' strike in the early 80s, 83, 84, when Margaret Thatcher, then conservative leader of Britain, conservative government leader and prime minister, was trying to smash the power of the unions and organized workers in the UK. Went to visit my parents, wasn't able to get in because the police told me we've locked down uh, the village because the miners are striking. I said, you can't do that. You can't keep me away from my parents. You just, I'm not doing anything illegal. And they said, watch us. Um, so I realized in that moment that, although politics hadn't been strongly on my radar, that if it was possible for the state to prevent me from meeting my family, I'd better have a look into politics a little bit and figure it out. And I think that activism comes out of that 
anger is an energy, that righteous energy, that positive energy in terms of turning to, well, what is a solution then? Because protesting about things is important, but we also have to say, well, what would we put in place? So my journey has been more to the what would you put in place and to the lived experience of a herbal practitioner and teacher and so on, being, being, being a contribution of that and in my writings and so forth. So the activism really comes from that political aspect. And I'm very aware that many people are drawn to studying whatever we call it, traditional medicine, natural medicine, complementary alternative medicine, the medicine of humanity, are not always comfortable in talking about politics. They're drawn towards a healing aspect and politics seems to them to be something divisive and problematic. But then I would say to students, for example, at PRC to use that example, that when you graduate from the college, the government is not gonna give you a job. It's not gonna pay your wages in the way that it will a conventional nurse or doctor, for example. And is that okay? Because one kind of medicine is approved by the state and people can get employment in that um, modality. But the other types of medicine are maybe tolerated by the state, but not really welcomed by it. And that's political. If you're studying for a career where the state takes a different view to what you do, to what conventional medicine does now, is that really okay? Is that really fair? Is that really all right? should we not have an integrated medicine where the contributions of everyone is valued? So by studying to choosing the path of the herbalist, it's an innately political act because it's a non-mainstream act that will bring you into challenge with the status quo of medicine um, and related thoughts within the culture. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter, we don't have to go here because I know it's very contentious right now, but hearing you speak of this, it very much reminds me of what we're going through right now with the lockdowns and, and the panic and the fear that's being spread. How do you sit with that? What's happening? Is it, well, I'll just leave that as an open question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to speak to it from perhaps quite a, you know, a limited, but I would say core perspective, which is that somebody, I forget who in on Twitter and they, as we moved into this pandemic moment and the self-isolation and so forth said, we've all been sent to our rooms to think about how naughty we've been in regard to nature. And I feel like it's that. I, I feel like the pandemic for all its, I know the horrors and suffering it's caused for many and the loss it's caused for many. Whilst acknowledging that, I would also say this is a, a necessary moment. Um, there is a, a, a power to this that could be achieved. I'm also aware that that power can go to the anger as an energy thing. I'm not feeling that so much myself. I'm feeling more the opportunity in this moment. People right now, as we're talking, Todd, you'll be aware of using this phrase, a new normal. And I know some people are really intimidated and scared of that. Like, what is a new normal? Long-term separation, being forced to do things and so forth. But the old normal before the pandemic had many problems with it. So we do need a new normal, but not a new normal that's imposed upon us by the powers that be who I don't think created this pandemic. And my, my view is it's naturally occurring. 
but certainly they're going to exploit it. If you read, for example, somebody like uh, the great Canadian journalist Naomi Klein, her book, The Shock Doctrine, she goes into detail how governments and corporations exploit moments of crisis in cultures, and you can be sure that's going on right now. So I think we need something counterbalancing to that, which is what does the new normal look like in a more positive sense? Do we have a better new normal to offer? And the core of that, I think, has to be what was very clear in the old normal, if you like, which is that we drifted far from our core relationship with nature. Human beings, we see ourselves to be not nature, to be apart from it. Therein, you know, lies, I think, all the difficulties as a core issue. So how do we come out of this? How do we reemerge with a better relationship with nature? There's a... American philosopher Stephen Toulmin wrote a book called Cosmopolis, and I think he put it as, as concisely and beautifully as anybody that, that, that I know. And he said that the modern world is based on two problems, separation from nature and a distrust of emotion. For me, that's it, you know, or at least that's the beginning of it. If we can reimagine our relationship with nature realize that we are nature and of course plants are a key instructor in that realization in which we develop relations with plants you can trust our emotions but be wary of being drawn into despondency and despair which is very understandable in this moment and instead go into hope and vision and to some degree that punk rock bloody mindedness i don't care what the status quo says i don't care or the powers that be say, there's a better way of doing things, and I'm going to have the courage to stand up for those things. Mm. So for me, it's really very general in that way, but it comes back to a theme that was clear before the pandemic, which is we need to remember, um, revisit, reestablish, reconnect with, reemerge with our, our relationship with nature. That's the core thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful, the separation from nature. And I also find a mistrust of emotions because we're now in a time where we are not encouraged to be trusting in our emotions. We're being encouraged to trust in the mass media and we're also being shamed if we trust otherwise. And I know it's leaving many people who don't have potentially the expertise or haven't sought out some other perspectives it's leaving them in a, a very challenging position yeah As imagine, a, sorry Tom, yeah. go ahead peter go ahead well i am just saying that uh i work a lot with with language hearing the stories of patients giving the stories of what i might be able to do as a herbalist with them communicate can you communicate my stories of physiology medicine and so forth, all the things that I teach, establishing therapeutic relationships. Um, and a key to language is etymology, you understand the meaning of language. So a key word for me to pick up in what you just said, which I think is at the crux is, is media. So in remembering that media means middle and the relationship there with medicine. So we need to get the right middle in the sense that um, medicine the word itself comes from the root word medicus, which doesn't mean the medicinal substance, it means the practitioner themselves, uh, the medical practitioner. 
So we are the media, we are the middle, we stand between, and in Chinese medicine, we would say between heaven and earth. Um, in Western medicine, an author called Thelma Sharon tra traces this word back and says it which meant standing between you know, God and the people. But whatever way we think of it, we, we are the media. We stand in the middle. We stand in the middle between the old normal and the new normal, or whatever you like. We're always in the middle. We're always between. And if we can grant ourselves agency, if we're privileged to have some degree of that, grant ourselves power, boldness, courage, the punk rock attitude in that, we can say, I will be the media. I will be the middle. Um, I will be the place between what was and what needs to be. So mainstream media are doing their thing. Social media, yeah, for good and for real, doing its, its thing. But the media we're using now of this podcast, as we both stand in the middle between our thoughts and reflections and those who are hearing them, um, that's powerful. If we can empower ourselves to be the media ourselves, to be the middle ourselves, to be the medicus ourselves, to connect heaven and earth, to, to get grandiose about it for a moment. But to use that power to change things, I think that's the place to be. That's the way to think of it. Mm -hmm. And thinking of this new normal that you're speaking of, it, it concerns me somewhat that there is this separation from nature. And during this pandemic, there's been a greater separation from nature. People haven't been allowed to go to the beaches and to the oceans and parts of the world, hiking trails that have very few people utilizing them, even at the busiest of times, have been closed, whereas our department stores have been left open. There's also, when it comes to the emotional side of things, we are emotional beings and we feed off of connection with one another. We get oxytocin from physical contact, which we're being told now is not a good thing. We we get all sorts of positive chemicals from being connected to one another. We also we get our microbiome from being connected to nature and to others. As a healer that you are, what are your thoughts on potentially some of the the positives and the negatives of this pending new normal that is being thrust upon us? Well, you know, first you speak to what the moment we're in, as you, you outlined really well there. This is a tricky passage, you know, that we're going, going, going through. This is a transition phase, and transitions are difficult because they bring uncertainty. But whilst we are being inhibited, rightly or wrongly, in various ways and to various degrees, from going outward um, into nature, for example, at this moment, I think it provides us with the opportunity and for sure some people are going to find this difficult to do and they need support in doing it and so on. But it provides us with the opportunity to go inward into inner nature. So I'm not sure that that connection with outer nature that we need to reestablish happens until there's been the connection with inner nature. So for me, that's where it begins, um, a revolution in the heart, as it sometimes I'm caught, bearing in mind that emotions as we think about emotions, feelings lead to thinkings. Um, and perhaps that's a place to start with feeling our emotions going inward at this stage. The image of the, the goddess in ancient Greece, for example, the goddess Gaia, is often shown with one eye looking out and one eye blind, blindfolded. 
and the eyeless blindfold is looking inward. So we always need that mix of looking out and looking in. As we're being inhibited from going out, and I know it's not quite as easy as this for everybody, but if we can, uh, then let's take the opportunity to look within. And I think that's the key to it all. There is this deeper, better world that our hearts know. And to re-engage with that, to have space to get into that, that is probably the place to re-emerge from. So for me, as we go into the new normal, what I want to see the new normal be is, in a way, the default position for being a human being, which is knowing that we are nature, knowing that we belong at the universe, in the universe, knowing that we're at home in the universe. And we've been so separated for so many reasons for so long from, so, from those things. But I think we all have ways of getting there and knowing that it's still there. Before mm-hmm. we go out, we maybe have to go in. That, that's the way it comes, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to dig just a bit deeper here too mm-hmm. with this neo-normalism and the emergence of, for lack of better terms, a plexiglass sterilized world. Mm-hmm. How is that going to affect us physically, health-wise, in your opinion, this inability to connect physically with others, this restructuring where we're all put behind plastic shields and, and sanitizing and and being separated from nature and the microbiome. Do you think that's going to have detrimental impacts on health and immunity? If it persists, for sure, right? Because we are part of nature and therefore we are essential beings. Um, we rely on not just the inner sense, but the outer senses that feed that and, and, and shape that inner sense. So we rely on our touch and our smell and our hearing and our taste. And we rely on a sensual engagement with the world. A great reading on this is David Abrams, now classic book, The Spell of the Sensuous. David also wrote a book called Becoming Animal, remembering that we are animals. Um, we have an intimate engagement with our environments, meaning that which wraps around us. So if any animal is separated from its environment, is tamed and domesticated and limited and uh, trapped, it ails. It ails. So there needs to be a counterbalance to whatever may be necessary measures at this time or for some time going forward. And I think a reasonableness in what can be justified and what cannot. Um, I, I, I'm an optimist, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I think that things will turn out well. Returning to Groucho Marx, um, he said, um, I've already tried to, you know, feel despondent, but somehow cheerfulness always keeps breaking through. Um, I found that in myself as well. There's something irrepressible. But I think there's something irrepressible in nature that maybe is what's coming through there as well. I'm not massively pessimistic about the future because I feel I have a, a perspective on it and knowledge is power or perspective is power. Whether this turns out to be correct or not, my feeling is yes. It's not a conspiracy theory to think that 
very powerful influencers will try and exploit this pandemic moment to their own ends. But it's also quite sensible to think that most people reject that, and many of us are not without our power in offering something else. At Pacific Rim College, just to use that as an example, because I'm sure people know correspondences in their own lives and their own, their own um, spheres of influence, students will sometimes, often towards graduation, talk about moving out of the Pacific Rim bubble, and they call it the PRC bubble. And I always question that when students raise that, because they say, you know, bubbles are beautiful, but they're also very fragile, they're easily popped. And I actually don't think we're part of a bubble, because I think there is a mass movement of people who do know that better world, their hearts know that, longing for it, craving for it, uh, that are yearning for it. And many people are yearning, through, yearning for it throughout the spirit of pandemic suffering. And they want to make it happen, and they are making it happen. I think there's something much more robust going on out there. And it's always that idea, I've been waiting for it for a long time, of the tipping point, where there's enough of us and it becomes the new normal. I do still believe in that. It's been a long time coming, but I do still believe in that. I think there's a, a tipping point where enough consciousness changes in enough people. And heaven knows we see examples of the contrary, right? But... I focus rather on what I see in my day-to-day -day life, the people who do get it, the people who do want something different, something better. I see that emerging. Um, my interest in complexity theory, a mathematical theory applied to, I'm not a mathematician, but applying the concepts of complexity theory to, to medicine is that every time I see a patient, there's an opportunity to reset the initial conditions of their health and well-being. And out of that, between now and the next appointment, there could be some emergent property that's along a healthful trajectory. And then I check in what the initial conditions are in that appointment, and then we try and adapt them again. So I think in a way what the pandemic is potentially doing, but this is my optimistic nature and view of this, there's a resetting of initial conditions which could lead into the dystopian, you know, future of increased separation and control and so on. I just, I don't feel it. I don't think those powers are powerful enough to force it upon us. And what do those people really want? They're not going to massively, you know, it's not going to fill their wells anyway. There has to be a point where this starts to break down for them as well. I think there is an emergent property coming through, which is a healthful trajectory. And I think we have an opportunity, each of us, to reset the initial conditions right now. And it's better to put your power into the things you can change, uh, the change you want to see, rather than dwelling on the things you can't change and the things you don't want to see. Because those who would like those evil outcomes to happen uh, will steal your power every time you do that. And of course, there are forces out there that try and influence in that direction. Remember your own power, be in touch with your own vision. It's not always easy, but it ultimately, that's the only thing that's ever changed anything. And I believe there is a growing global consciousness desiring that end. So I'm very optimistic, and I put my energy into the optimistic outcomes, into the maybe somewhat utopian vision rather than the dystopian one. Oh, I appreciate your insight on that, Peter. Thank you for that. Back to Herbs a bit more. You mentioned Native American influences. What other uh, geographic or cultural influences have 
have informed your herbal medicine practice? So several, I mean, one that immediately comes to mind is that of um, French medicine. I should say I'm a Francophile who doesn't speak very good French. So I just torn up about that. Um, <laughs> that's one of my major projects going forward is to get good at speaking French. Um, but French medicine, French terrain medicine, terrain being the lie of the land and applying the idea of the caring for the soil to caring for the body, the soil of the body. French terrain therapy, which is known as um, endobiogeny to some degree now. Uh, practitioners like Jean-Claude Lepraz. Um, one of my big influences, one of my main teachers, Julian Barker in the UK, uh, connected me with these kind of insights at a certain point. And then I trained in aromatic medicine, the medical use of essentials with Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Penuel. Again, steeped in conventional medicine, but also in this French terrain therapy. So the idea of using medicine within a conventional framework, but using natural medicines is to me very powerful. So I'm, I'm a big believer in integrated medicine, the best of conventional and alternative medicine combining. I think that's the way forward. So models like Daniel have been really important um, for me in that way. So the French terrain or endobiogeny um, uh, approach has been really significant. Daniel, by the way, is, is a great influence. Um, very passionate Frenchman who um, I studied with a series of seminars that he did in the 90s in uh, the medical use of essentials. He wrote the major textbook on that, Exactement de Phytotherapy. Um, the exact practice, precise practice of aromatherapy. And um, I'm attracted to these characters who have this great passion and vision, right? And the courage to just go for it. Um, Daniel once was teaching, it was a hot day. And just to give you an insight to his kind of style. And he was talking about essentials and he was excited about them and he's sweating and perspiring. And without skipping a beat, just keeping with what he was trying to teach us about and tell us about the power of essential oils and how he must use them medically and so on. He takes his shirt off, mops down his face and his torso, with it, <laughs> throws it into the corner and keeps teaching. You know? He emerges from the next break with a fresh, clean shirt on. But those are, you know, those are the characters that I've called to, the ones who get so lost in their passion, you know, that they kind of <laughs> are oblivious to, 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 to the, you know, stuff that doesn't matter too much in the background. So that, that sort of, um, and, and for, for me, sort of, Daniel is a spirit animal of terrain therapy, right? So um, that, you know, that would be a key influence, for example. And then the British influence is a, is a tricky one because I have my own sort of difficult relationship with the UK and that uh, my mother's English and I was born and raised in England, but my father was Irish um, and the Irish-English colonial tension has always been there in my life and, and, and colors my thoughts about the UK. But um, traditional medicine in the UK as well, having not, not having an indigenous people in its own country, um, there is still a degree of ethnobotany there. So in places like the Scottish Highlands, which I've been fortunate to spend a lot of time in, um, there is a connection with the earth that shows up sometimes in um, a, a really interesting herbal tincture that is called whiskey that you may have heard of. Um, that has been part of my grounding as well. So from the culture that I was born into. 
uh, Irish medicine. I've taught them, uh, and spent time in uh, in Ireland with Irish herbalists as well, bringing through the Celtic dynamic, as it might be called, um, uh, Druidic influences that I'm very interested in as well. It's much kind of um, dissociated from because these things have often been very suppressed in that culture. But there are threads still to connect with, and the plants still hold those connections as well. Increasingly, um, I'm being drawn into plant philosophy and and um, and plant communication strategies from around the world. So, the philosopher Michael Marder um, in Spain, who um, talks, uh, his philosophy is based on the philosophy of vegetal being. Has a number of incredible books that he's writing, writing, um, and has written at this point. Um, Monica Galliano, who's in a researcher in Australia who does um, plant communication-based research, um, showing the wisdom uh, of plants. Um, her work's been very influential. She wrote a beautiful book called Thus Spoke the Plant, um, which uh, I've just finished reading. Um, Matthew Hall, a botanist in the UK, um, who um, wrote a book called Plants as Persons, which has been called the first plant rights book. Um, that's been very influential for me. So particular individuals and cultures and so forth, whole range of things. Yeah. Backing up to the Irish English and the whiskey, when you spoke of the whiskey, is that the actual water of life whiskey or is this a herbal remedy? That... The water of life I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Which is, I guess, in a sense, it, it is a herbal remedy, isn't it? It is a herbal remedy. I mean, it's a, it's a remedy of the earth. Um, so mm-hmm. the whiskeys that I that I prefer, the peated ones, mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know taste like uh, petroleum or gasoline, right? And they have these very um, deep and profound elements from the earth, um, uh, with the um, uh, uh, the turf being smoked, um, the peat being being smoked, and getting. Mm-hmm to the water so there is that basic alchemy so if you go to like somewhere like the isle of sky there's one extant distillery the talisker distillery distillery um where you can go and see whiskey being made in the traditional style style using the earth to smoke um the whiskey and then take a dram out onto the heather moors um and uh, and have a little glass of that connection between the spirit of the earth um and the tradition of these people who lived in quite tough circumstances over very long times. And that, to me, is also part of herbal medicine. You know, I don't generally prescribe whiskey for my patients, don't get me wrong, um, but there are so many ways in which we can find connections with herbal medicine. Even you know, like sodas were originally herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coca-Cola was a, was a herbal medicine. Dr. Peppers was a herbal medicine. Dandelion and Burdock was herbal medicine. Candies were originally herbal medicines, jujubes that were, you know, used for throat candies. Uh, really? Perfume um, was originally herbal medicine, essential oils, right? Um, based things. Cosmetics were all originally herbal medicines. Um, herbs like uh, lavender water and so on applied to the skin to care for it. So as you start to, to, to see the influence of plants, they open out into pretty much, you know, everything, right? plants the portal to everything i'm fond of that phrase and give you access to pretty much anything you would want to look into and for me that's really important when we our previous discussion talking about this current pandemic moment and its challenges one thing that is literally earthing and grounding sustains me through all of these challenges 
uh, is just that, a connection with plants, you know, be like plants. What do plants do? Um, they find opportunity. They come up through the, the, the cracks in the sidewalk. Think of the trees, like uh, where I live in Victoria, the Gary Oaks uh, surrounding me right now. These beautiful, spacious um, oaks that, you know, uh, many of them date back to pre-colonial times. And what have they done through massive changes in this um, part of the world? stood the ground they've kept going they've been consistent they've also been open to change as it's flown around them but they've kept going for many hundreds of years and i think you know keep faith with what's real don't get swayed by the transient superficial right? um find what's real and stick to that be consistent but be open to change develop your resilience around that be like there's an old zen saying of course very well known about being like water um, but be like plants is one to add to that as well. Mm -hmm. I greatly appreciate your your perspective on the connection and the, our connectivity to the planet and, and earth and the plants and all of those things that you spoke of from the whiskey, you spoke of the ceremony of it and the beauty behind that, that connection and, and through the sodas and the candies and the perfumes and all these things that you mentioned, of course, as you said them, as, oh yes, yeah, they are. They are plant-based medicine, but I think we have most people wouldn't recognize that on the surface because we have lost sense of that connection to the earth and to the origins of these medicines. We live in a profane world, um, so we've forgotten the sacredness of everyday life, uh, the mundane sacredness of, of everyday life. Traditional cultures, everyone grew up knowing herbs. You know, if you had. Um, an upset stomach, or if you're feeling tired, or if you need help sleeping, you didn't need to go to a herbalist to ask them which herb to take. You knew those basic things you knew. You only involved the herbalist um, or the midwife herbalist or the shaman, to call it that, specialist in using psychedelic plants if you needed it. You know, everybody had a mundane grounding, an everyday grounding, in an of the world grounding in herbal medicine. So I like to, you know, challenge people and say, hell, medicine is very boring, you know, in that way. It, it's part of the everyday. Or it's very, you know, for me, enchanting, you know, in the everyday in that kind of sense, right? So if we recover our ground, we can stand our ground. And the ground's always been that. It, to invoke Terence again, Terence would say that salvation is always available to us. It's in the moment. All we have to do is decide, decide to be saved. Now, for me, all I have to do is remember the plants. You know, they've always been there, always will be there. They sustain us, they created the world for us. And as soon as I start to talk like that, I get into the sacred, the sacred mindset, rather than the profane mindset. The profane mindset is, you know, we can cut down our old coastal forests in Canada because these are resources to fuel the economy. Because here's a, another key thing of politics, of course, Todd, that um, it seems that human beings have been tricked into thinking that we are here to serve the economy, rather than it being the other way around. There's a fundamental political shift. The economy is here to, share, to, to serve us. We're not uh -huh. here to serve it. Right? That's a big lie. It's a big trick that we form from. So the profane and sacred tension is an interesting one. We live in a, a profane world, a desacralized world, a spoiled world, but we can resacralize it. And we all have that sacredness deep within us. We can access it, I think. Um, sometimes we need support in doing so. Mm -hmm. 
You spoke earlier of deep herbalism. What is that? It's what we just said. I, <laughs> I, had, a, I had a feeling that was... That's it, right? I think it begins with that. For me, it begins with that. It begins with recognizing what is herbal medicine. It is not a, an alternative medicine. It is not a peripheral part of the healing sphere of the modern world. It is one of the most profound human relationships um, on which we have depended and from which we have emerged and which should be recognized as being at the very core of human existence and societies that form from human existence. So that's the first thing about the depth of it. We co-evolved with plants. Herbal medicine is pre-human, a hominid and hominin pre-species developed with plants. We are the inheritors of that plant-animal relationship. And plants are written all over our DNA, literally. Um, they're written all over our cell receptors, literally. Um, we are wired for them to use that thread. So that's one aspect of deep herbalism. And then another aspect in terms of current practice is the extent to which, and again, my punk rock ethos is to challenge, or I'd rather say provoke, bearing in mind the etymology again, that provoke comes from provoce, which means to find a good voice. So if I provoke someone, I'm helping them, at least what I think, to find a good voice, right? So I wanna to say to a lot of herbalists, we're quite narrow in what we think about herbal medicine. We've accepted it as this peripheral thing in culture. Let's challenge that. Let's extend it. Let's uh, extend the breadth of the practice of herbal medicine so that it includes aromatic medicine, essentials, so it includes psychedelics. I really wanted initially, when I was seeking my right livelihood and became a herbalist, I really wanted to be a psychedelic psychotherapist, but that wasn't really a sort of funded career option that was open to me at the time, but we're getting there now. Yeah, we certainly uh, are. We're getting there. So I want to challenge herbalists and others who are interested in plant medicine, uh, our allies in, in these fields, to think how big can herbal medicine be? How extensive can it be? And in many ways, we're just recovering what it has always been, just waking up to what it has always been. So it's wonderful there are so many courses and trainings and so on emerging in the basics and the lost traditions of, uh, of herbal medicine. But I think there is something deeper for us all to grow in with that. And given that I have 30 years or so in traversing that territory, that's kind of what I enjoy doing now is opening up and sharing that um, and helping to awaken whatever that deep herbalism might be in others so we can mm -hmm. go beyond the basics into into pretty much anywhere in fact yeah. mm -hmm. you mentioned the economy and how we are trying to fuel the economy i while you were talking i, I had a hunch but i looked i also am a fan of etymology so I, I looked up economy and it means to manage the household right. and when i think of it on the broader perspective the planet is basically our habitat mm -hmm. and we are exploiting the resources of the planet and so-called attempts to fuel our economy. And it's, we're, we're just simply raping and pillaging our household in order to manage our household. Yeah. And of course there's only one end to that and it's not a good one. And no. getting, you know, much as I'm optimistic and I think the tide can be turned, the tide is flowing mostly in one direction right now. 
and it's it's not a direction we want to go. So I think the this the question then is okay. We need to protest against that, but what's our solution? What do we offer? Back to Illich, Ivan Illich. Illich said the vernacular revolution. If economy relates to management of the home, then the vernacular revolution that um, Ivan called for is homemade, um, uh, home resourced, do it yeah. yourself right with support yeah. of community right that's really important not individual but collectively we need to do this so that means you know permaculture you know um building our own sustainable ecosystems mirroring nature using biomimicry um it means building our own dwellings um building our own houses living on a smaller scale living more lightly seeing subsistence as a positive idea rather than something to fight against subsistence meaning having enough you know, mm-hmm. not too much but having enough i came across a a fabulous quote that sort of drew this together for me a couple of days ago intriguingly enough in an article um in the journal of the american medical association so there's some some insights coming into the mainstream world and this is a quote from wendell berry um it goes something like this that we should consider community to be the smallest unit of health. And if we do, it means that when we talk about individualized health, that's a contradiction in terms. Yeah. So how do we build community and have that communal support and growth and develop and joy and the closeness that you know you were lamenting our current separation from quite right, rightly sure just, just a while ago. How do we get that communal engagement? So we're all doing that in various ways, right? And often at PRC, again, just to use that example, since you know we were both involved with that project, um, people talk about the PRC bubble, but they do talk about the PRC community as well, which is related to many other communities across the world. The other people who you've spoken to on this podcast, and of course way outside that, are coming from communities that intersect with our community in natural medicine, traditional medicine. So finding that communal response and nurturing that and finding our communality, I think that's that's a key to all this as well. Right? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a guest who I did have on the show earlier, Mark Lake, Lakeman, who's a well-known permaculturist, and his his passion is in creating communal space from otherwise space that's not being used. For example, in Portland, they're transforming public intersections into community hubs. They're bringing communal spaces and villages into each neighborhood and really transforming the culture of the entire city doing that. And it's, it's spreading to other areas as well. I think that's key. And, and, these things have been circulating for some time. I was listening to the Rolling Stones yesterday for some reason. Jumping Jack Flash came into my mind and I wanted to listen to it. At the beginning, Mick Jagger sings, I was born in a crossfire hurricane. Um, and I was like, you know, I was born in the early 60s and, and in, in general, I was born into that sort of crossfire hurricane of the time of the culture and the counter-revolution. Born in the early 60s when the Stones and the Beatles and all that starting up. And the 60s ideology came through and so on. And all the kind of visions about how we can live better come through. So, for example, the F. Schumacher's seminal work in the 70s, Small is Beautiful. That, I think, remains a really key mantra. We need these mantras for 
sustenance and, uh, and development small is beautiful. So those kind of micro communities that you were mentioning there, I think are key to this. Um, small, local, but the old mantra of, you know, the peace movement, um, the ecology movement dating back to the 1960s as well. Um, think globally, act locally. Um, I think this is the key. So in permaculture projects, in uh, natural medicine projects and so on, we have examples of these things coming, to, coming together. Providing the things, foods and medicines, for example, in those examples that we need to sustain our core. And I do think there is one kind of interesting positive thing from the pandemic as well which is the idea of essential and non-essential workers, right? And the idea of essential and non-essential practice, therefore. We need food, we need medicine, and we need connection. What's essential to us is becoming clear for a lot of people at this time. So let's, through this enforced necessity, let's make it an opportunity to revision and revivify what we feel is core and essential and build it from there. And I think it has to grow out of community. I think, I think that's what we've all been longing for. My contribution really is also to remind us of the community we share with non-human animals and uh, non-human entities, other than human entities, um, such as the plants themselves, of course. If we can wake up and realize that we depend entirely on plants. Um, without them, we don't have an atmosphere to breathe. We don't have food to eat. We don't have an environment to move in. That could be one of those initial condition resetting moments to take that deeply to heart and from them. And with the connection and community, right now we're moving into a time, being forced into a time where that's largely virtual and it is these these plants and these animals they're not in the virtual realm so i encourage people to pull back from their devices as their source of community and reconnect with the earth and with the land and with our our fellow species yeah i support that and it's interesting the sort of discussions that have been coming out and the um reference that people have been making to well i'm not allowed to go out very far so i've been going into my garden you know and um, I know that um, plant suppliers and uh, oh, yes. suppliers have been doing pretty well at <laughs> this moment, right? Mm -hmm. There's something in that, right? Maybe people will get more at home in their gardens and um, extend the sphere of plant connection from there, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm cognizant of our time here. It's been a great conversation, but there's a few things that I want to make sure we get in before we wrap up. Those are your couple of your current projects. I know you are a published author in the herbal field and you're currently working on a rewrite of your textbook. And I also wanted to touch in touch base with the online courses that you and your colleague David Caldwell and others such as Amanda Howe have created. So if you don't mind taking however much time you want to to talk about those a little bit. Yeah, well, I... As you said, um, David and David Caldwell and Amanda Howe and other colleagues... Um, involved in the PRC community have recently, uh, under the great guidance of Gillian Marsolier and with the help of Liza Kaus and of course yourself and James and Brie, um, 
more than in the background, but holding the space for all that to happen and making all that space to happen. We've created these two courses, a shorter and a longer course in herbal medicine uh, training. And I've only recently had an opportunity because it's quite fresh to view some of the material. So to look at some of the courses, um, I must say, I mean, obviously there's a certain you know, bias in this, but I've got to say that I'm stunned by the quality of what's being produced. The skills of the whole team, but including the, um, uh, the camera people and the sound people and everything. It's been beautifully, beautifully packaged. It's a joy to watch. I was even relatively comfortable watching myself, which is <laughs> something. I, like most people, <laughs> that's not necessarily something I always enjoy. So I thought it was really beautifully and skillfully done. And there's great integrity and so much depth of information in those courses. So I've been really thrilled to be part of that and thank you all who've been involved in making that possible because although i've been involved in home medicine for 30 years or so i've never been captured significantly on camera to this the, the this moment uh, it's just never come my way so it seems that this is the right moment for it um i'm also you know as watching some of those recordings for, for david and amanda's pieces a little bit in my own and um was very moved to think that, you know, I have young children and um, there is some recording of dad in action there that we'll have in the future. And, and um, you know, that's a beautiful thing to, to know that is there to, you know, uh, it may be helpful to them at some point in the mm. future. So, so th that I'm deeply grateful for. So it is a profound course and I think it's very much the time for that. So I've been, as I said to you, well, I'm really interested in opening my ways of communicating what I have in terms of knowledge about home medicine. And so doing the videos have been great speaking to you right now. It's a great pleasure to be able to do that as well. The second edition of my textbook, which will be a 10-year anniversary, um, fully revised and expanded edition, I'm working very slowly. I've just uh, currently renegotiated the deadline with that with my publisher. Um, I'm known in, by my mum as last-minute Larry because <laughs> I tend to be a very last-minute person. So writing a, rewriting a major textbook is a challenge for me. But that's fascinating because there are so many things that were not in the first edition. I, I, I realize how much culture has changed in that time, practitioner culture. So in the, 10 years ago in that first edition, there's no mention of trauma-informed um, practice. There's no mention of LGQ, BTI plus inclusivity and allyship. Uh, there's no mention of um, gender inclusivity. Uh, there are several things that have emerged as being more um, clear and well-recognized issues that I didn't cover in the first text. So um, I, I'm including those kind of areas in the second text. It's a great journey of discovery and extending and including things I've learned over the last 10 years into that. So that's a major piece. And I'm very unlikely to write another major book again because it's so much goddamn hard work. Mm -hmm. I um, and then I do have a project which will be coming online um, a rather modest project, at least initially coming online later in the summer this year. We're talking in uh, 2020, right? Um, and uh, I'll give the, this is the first public announcement of the name of that project. So, um, it's going to be called The Emergent Herbalist. So back to what we talked about, emergent properties. 
um, and resetting initial conditions. It's my contribution online will begin as a blog, um, but a way of sharing my thoughts and writings to those who are interested to facilitate the development of the deep herbalism movement, which I would love to see gather momentum. That term has been used before by other herbalists, but I would like to see it gain a lot more uh, traction and momentum as things go forward. And I have a young family and of course significant amount of teaching um, and practice work and so forth. So that keeps me pretty much fully occupied um, uh, amongst also getting out to you know, experience nature. So this is kind of a typical kind of me moment if anyone's interested. So I went for my um, uh, run yesterday. But as I'm running through uh, Victoria right now, we're in uh, May and this is a garden city. This is a tree city. It's an extraordinarily beautiful city. I'm very fortunate to live in the Fairfield area, close to Oak Bay and uh, beautiful part of the city. So I was on my run last night and I don't get very far before there's a, a flowering tree that I don't know. So I have to kind of make a mental note of that so I can look it up later. It's beautiful yellowy orange flowers. And I cross the road and there's um, an Arbutus tree that is, its bark is peeling. So I've got to grab a little bit of that, that peel so I can take it home and respectfully and without harming the plant and asking it, of course. Um, I grab a little of that and tuck that into my pocket as I continue on my run. And then there's a Nuka rose that's calling out to me with its sweet scent. So I've got to stop and smell some of that. And then the majesty of the Gary Oaks, one has to pause with for a second, um, Quercus Gariana and take that in. And then there's some fresh miner's lettuce by the wayside in a unspoiled bit of my track that I'm hoping nobody um, has um, spat on or anything, but I take the risk. <laughs> the plant tells me it's okay. And uh, in this pandemic moment, so I've got a little nibble on miner's lettuce, right? <laughs> so th this, is, this is my life. I, I got a bit of a run in amongst all that. The plants are constantly diverting me and calling to me. And that essential engagement with the world um, that, um, you know, uh, is a constant in my life as well. Um, so um, I'm certainly, mm. certainly not self-isolating from nature and from, from plants uh, at this stage. So just to give you a kind of an insight into, you know, the mix I have going on. If you like. uh, that's a beautiful thing. Your, <laughs> your book is titled, entitled what? The book is The Consultation in Phytotherapy, uh, The Herbal Practitioner's Approach to the Patient. Okay. Um, and so what it, the, the filter it uses is to take a, a phrase from Ivan Illich. Illich said that tools shape competencies. So instead of thinking about, I'm a herbalist, I want to use plants, how do I use plants? to more ask the question, how do the plants want to use us or work through us, if you like? So what would be a plant-centered way of being a herbalist in the sense of what are the qualities of plants? What are, what are their characteristics as tools in the sense of, you know, agents that can cause change? That, that's the focus of it. And the first edition came out a decade or so ago. Uh, it's time to revisit the second one. I should say, I know that the Elsevier, it was originally published by Elsevier, who are one of the biggest medical publishers of journals and books in the world. And um, 
they took it out of print fairly recently um, uh, and just kept it as a, an e version. And I wanted to bring it back into 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 print. So a publisher in the UK um, uh, are going to you know bring it into the second edition. So it's really nice to be able to get it back out again and have it as a physical object. That physical thing again, right? An e book is yeah. great. You, know, you can get the information. But I like to, you know, hold the object and have that tactile experience, and I find it softer on the consciousness as well as the eyes. I agree with that. And your online programs, just a little plug for that, it's the Home Herbalist Program and the Community Herbalist Program through Pacific Rim College Online. They are incredible, as you said. Beautiful footage. Nine amazing expert instructors, including yourself. You were actually, when you were telling the story about the professor who took his shirt off, it reminded me of, as some may know, much of the, the program was filmed here on, on my farm, Ravenel Herb Farm. And one of the days you were teaching, I won't say who, but someone thought they were turning off the heat in the studio and instead they cranked the heat. <laughs> <laughs> And about midway through your day, you were suffering <laughs> and we couldn't figure out. We're like, why is it? Why is Peter so hot? <laughs> and the whole film crew, every time there was a break, all the doors would open up on the studio and everyone would rush outside. I just thought I, guess I was on fire, you know, I was <laughs> like, wow, generating so much heat here. That's like <laughs> the, the temperature yeah, I remember seeing the thermostat that evening and it was set to like 25 degrees Celsius. <laughs> I think not quite as dramatically as Daniel Penuel, but I think I did have to change my shirt during that, <laughs> during, during that day. But that was, yeah, one of the interesting experiences of the filming process, I've got, I've got to say. And by the way, you know, people might be interested in my contributions to that. I, I, I do an introduction to herbal medicine, so, so it was a great opportunity to give my cut out perspective uh, hatched over the decade. And I also do a piece on aromatic medicine, which um, is a medical use of essential oils. Uh, I'm rather disdainful, sorry, aromatherapist of the term aromatherapy. And aromatic medicine is more in keeping with the French tradition that I'm trained in. And then a piece on establishing therapeutic relationships uh, in talking about plants, in connecting people with them. One of my teachers said that um, a herbalist is just a matchmaker between people and plants. So how do we do that? And how do we generate therapeutic connection above and beyond the plants themselves? You know, um, that's a, so those are the three bits that I think I offer in that. Mm. Yes. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom and expertise. You, you have such a beautiful outlook on life and so much to contribute. What you bring to the Pacific Rim College community and have brought for nearly the past decade, it's beyond words. Our appreciation for that is, is simply immense. And I look forward to ongoing collaboration with you. I'm excited about all the things that are percolating inside you that you might be able to take get out there to inspire other people. It's wonderful. Well, me, me too. And I also wanted to say to you, Todd, and I hope you'll leave this in the, keep the tape running and leave this in the podcast that to you, to yourself and to Bree and James, um, instigators and directors and sustainers and nurturers uh, of PRC. I, I know a little bit um, of some of the challenges um, 
you've had in keeping this show on the road and, and particularly during the pandemic, of course, this has major implications for keeping courses going, keeping training going and so on. So I just wanted to thank you and, and Brian James and the whole team for um, creating this um, boutique holistic educational emporium for me to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to be part of. And just to pay, you know, genuine respect to what it takes to get a vision like this off the ground, which is probably the easiest bit in a way, keeping it going and keeping it growing and keeping it developing, I think is the biggest thing. And I know there've been a lot of struggles in doing that. So I just want to salute you all for doing that. And also thank you for the space you allow me really, because you allow me and the other professors at the college to, to do our thing um, and to be ourselves and to be authentic and to bring what we have in a, in a very deep way, uh, a way that is usually not encouraged to that degree in other educational establishments, particularly um, more mainstream ones. So again, just to reciprocate and say thank you, I really appreciate what we're all achieving here. Um, and it, it is, it is you know, uh, manifesting destiny for me to be part of all this. So thank you for, for helping me be part of it as well. Oh, I appreciate that. As you said, I guess we're all freaks of it. So it's, yeah. we've created a great community. <laughs> if you're available for people to connect with you, how might they be able to do that? Well, watch out for the Emergent Herbalist, which will take you to a website in due course over the next uh, few months as we get a little bit further into um, 2020. Um, but also on Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter in terms of watching it, not so much communicating on it now, but I'm Conway Herbalist on Twitter. Uh, I like Twitter a lot because you can personalize it to follow the things that are important to you. Uh, and people can like, connect me, with me through DMs on Twitter if they wish to in that way. But watch out for the Emergent Herbalist Project. It'll be mm. coming um, very soon. Yes. And anyone who wants to learn from you, of course, the online programs that we just spoke of, great opportunity for people to learn directly from you and your experiences. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so great to, to be able to have it out there because I know for as much as we want personal communication, and I really thrive most in that, um, in the same space as others when I'm teaching and so on. Um, online education can be incredibly powerful, and I think um, certainly it, it, it more than fills a gap. I think it can be, you know, incredibly valid in its own right. So it's wonderful to be able to have that option out there as well. And from someone myself who has benefited so much from herbal medicine and it's become such a intricate part of my life, I thank you for all the work that you've done in, in recording and carrying forward this incredible knowledge that it's so important that is that it stays alive and with all of us. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Tom. And of course, I can also refer to my own, pass that baton on, you know, backwards as it were, because um, the College of phytotherapy where I studied was um, founded or, or developed, I should say, or continued by, because it, it, it dates back to 1864, really, in its origins, that course, by um, one of my great influences I didn't mention and want to pay respect to, which, who is Heinz Elstra, this um, extraordinary um, Dutch pharmacist, herbalist, who looked a lot like Rembrandt, uh, in fact, or a goatee beard. Um, who had the passion and vision 
at a time um, in the 70s when, you know, it, it would have been very easy to lose the thread of professional herbal medicine in the UK particularly. He really kept that flame going. So um, to extend that a little bit back to Hein as well with that Hein's extra, you know, I wouldn't have had a training to do. I wouldn't have had that golden ticket. Um, so thank you for recognizing that, that kind of stream of, you know, a flow that of course leads us to this moment. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Peter. It's been such an honor and well, we might have you. to do, might have to do this again sometime. You, you have so much knowledge to mine and I've really enjoyed this. Uh, well, I, you know, as we were saying about that human element, the human element of dialogue and riffing on each other and affirming and validating and drawing out and extending and provoking in a positive sense, you know, I think that that's what will carry us forward. That's the connection that will help us. Yeah. So thanks for making it happen in this way. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. So there it is. I would do a mic drop if my mic wasn't so big and fancy, but it is. So I won't. If you did not enjoy this podcast, it is probably my fault. If you did, it's probably Peter's fault. Either way, I hope you have been provoked called forward to action. If you want to learn from Peter, consider enrolling in any of the on-site or online herbal programs at Pacific Rim College. Peter's newest programs, the Home Herbalist and Community Herbalist programs at PacificRimCollege.online are arguably the finest online herbal programs available anywhere. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn about all our education opportunities. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, reconnect with nature and try to be like plants.